0: Oh, Okay, friends, welcome back to Rounding the News. I'm your host, Liam Sturgis, and this is our weekly news roundup presented by Rounding the Earth. As we started doing last week, we're going to break down the news into six categories. Health, legal, economy, geopolitics, environment, and culture. Remember, our goal is to capture the broad scope of events across each area that directly affects the well-being and day-to-day life of each person on the planet our coverage is community supported and the items we cover are entirely based on our own interests and instincts even the sponsors we work with are themselves members of the community and they do not influence the tone or content of our work unless of course you've had a few glasses of uh of blood of tyrants wine At which point I would say the work becomes slightly influenced. But that's not the case today. So, let's jump right in, folks. RoundingTheEarth.substack.com That is our host newsletter. I recommend going and subscribing there if you haven't. So... Let's just do this. Item number one, turns out kids don't want this shot. I think we've mentioned this before, but thankfully, the vast majority of parents in the United States, at least, seem to have made an informed decision not to inject their children with experimental gene therapy products that are clearly hurting so many people. This is from the Washington Post. I quote, Doctors and public health experts never expected there would be this little interest in vaccines for young children. Even in places with strong pro-vaccine sentiments, few young children have received shots, including in the district, which has the highest percentage vaccinated. In D.C., barely 21% of children six months to four years old have received one shot. And just 7.5%, have received both doses, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi, which occupy the bottom of the list, the rates are even more dismal, less than 0.2%. Health officials worry that the lackluster vaccination uptake might leave the nation vulnerable to coronavirus clusters in the fall and winter. Also happening this week... Turns out the U.S. life expectancy has declined by three years in a historic decline. That is on the Epoch Times, and the show notes uh, are available in the chat now on both YouTube and Rumble. Um, so you can go check out that story there. Now, moving into the legal side, the government of Canada has announced that it's going to be suspending, that word's important, the use of the ArriveCan Can app. Along with the requirement that those entering Canada be vaccinated against COVID-19, at least if you want to avoid quarantine. Now, we went into more detail about what ARRIVE CAN is in our interview with or our roundtable discussion with Dr. York Xiong, which uh, is titled Fighting for the Right to Treat. So if you haven't seen that, go check that out. It's basically quite literally a vaccine passport. Um, so according to Global News here, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau agreed to scrap the country's COVID-19 vaccine mandate at the border and make the Arrive Can app optional for travelers entering Canada. Global News has learned. Optional being, hey, we spent so much money on this. We didn't expect this much pushback. I guess some people uh, maybe just won't hear that they don't have to use it anymore and maybe we can get away with a couple of people still using it. Um, I really don't know who would do that or why, but I suppose it's possible. Uh, the decision to let the current measures expire on September 30th, has, as planned, was made Thursday, according to a senior government source. That's yesterday. The federal government is still deciding whether to maintain the requirement for passengers to wear face masks on trains and airplanes, and will be discussed at Cabinet this afternoon. The source said. I haven't heard any official update on that, but if that requirement goes away, that will be almost the final thing to be revoked, which there's plenty of scientific evidence to do. And that would make my life and so many other people's lives so much better. (laughs) So, conveniently enough, though, this decision comes at the exact same moment that the government is in court right now, trying to have a case on this exact topic dismissed for mootness. A group of plaintiffs brought several different suits um several different challenges to the travel mandates including those led by former newfoundland premier brian peckford just pulling up a tweet where i listed out uh yes former newfoundland premier brian peckford who also helped draft the canadian charter of rights and freedoms carl harrison who we also had on our round table i recommend going to see that it's titled citizen versus state and this is the exact case that we were uh, talking about his co-plaintiff Sean Rickard and Maxime Bernier leader of the People's Party of Canada. I had a fun moment where I was watching this hearing live and I saw Carl and immediately behind him was um was Maxime Bernier and uh I saw that Carl was on his phone uh which I suppose in this specific court case wasn't the problem and uh I I thought I'd send him a text and I said hey man you look great on TV and he replied thanks. I feel old. (laughs) It had been a long flight. Anyway, so Pierre Polyev chimed in, says we are winning, not even two weeks as leader. And Trudeau is backing down on his unscientific vaccine mandates and making the disastrous arrive can app voluntary. Um. My, uh, my friend and colleague, David Speaker of the Canadian COVID Carolines, points out, it wasn't your doing, it's all thanks to Brian Peckford, and I thought I'd chime in and make sure everyone got some credit. So I said, and Maxime Bernier, uh, Keith Wilson, the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedom, Sam Presvedelos, Carl Harrison, Sean Rickard, and the many others working on their cases. Not to mention every Canadian who's peacefully pushing back in their own lives. A little Pierre Polier political pressure helps too. Hashtag arrive, Ken. Uh, attorney keith wilson who i mentioned in there and then who immediately followed me back on twitter which was exciting for me uh jumped on a live stream with viva fry to discuss the case yesterday and its timing with the changes to travel requirements so you can check it out on rumble titled interview with keith wilson brian peckford's charter challenge update okay moving into the economy um, the rebirth of community banking with Oliver Studd. Matthew usually does a one-on one discussion with the guest on Mondays, and this week he bumped it up to two. We're not going to get into the second one so much today, but um it was a double it was a, a double header this week to make up for one week that he missed, uh, presumably. Um, so the first video from Running the Earth this past week on Monday was a wonderful conversation with Oliver Studd, CEO of the Valhalla network. That's his pretty face there. Turns out he's a year younger than me. That was a surprise to find out. Successful man. From Matthew's article on it, as you can see here on Rounding the Earth, quote, community banks are one of the small number of most undervalued entities in finance. Locally run, they are better at deploying capital to talented, local, usually small, sometimes medium business developers with low risk and thus low interest rates. Spreading community banks around the world is one of the keys to bringing more of the world's technology to people who want and need it. These are generally the technologies of communities, not the technologies of centralized control and surveillance. Small businesses are the vehicles for artisan craftsmen to interface with world markets and also for local farmers to feed their communities. So you can watch the entire discussion on Rumble, YouTube, Rockvin Odyssey, BitChute, or Brighteon. And all of those links are in the show notes. Um, some further reading uh, stories that I did not have time to dive into further in my preparations, but are still very relevant. Bavarian Nordic is feeling pretty good about their finances. Thanks, Monkeypox. So that's good. And Joe Biden says COVID is over. I can't believe we're just skimming past this one. Um, But uh, yeah, apparently the pandemic is over. So, you know, time to spend more money on monkeypox, I guess, uh, as cases fall, of course. So I don't know, man. Now, before we get into geopolitics, let's have a quick word from our sponsor, (sighs) IPAC EDU. Yes, indeed, they have launched their new information sheet subscription service. Now available is the IPAC-EDU information sheet number two. There's a whole two of them out so far, outlining the follies and flaws of vaccinating children under five against COVID-19 with scientific references. And now I will read from this Substack by James Lyons-Weiler, the uh, leader of IPAC-EDU. Here are the things you can do with these sheets one send the file to your local printer shop and order copies you decide how many Two, hand these out to school board members, members of your congregation, your government representatives, family members, and friends. You can distribute printed copies at your events and social gatherings. You can include them in your organization's mailings. You can leave them at your local coffee shops and other creative places. We are currently working on IPAC EDU info sheet number three for October release. It will focus on the flaws and foibles of the bivalent COVID vaccine paradigm. You can access this best by subscribing to the subscription service. You'll gain immediate download access to the first two information sheets, and then you will be emailed monthly each new information sheet as it's completed. So go to ipackedu.org. that's ipakedu.org, slash registration, and use coupon code earth at checkout and you'll save five percent of the cost of your subscription to either these sheets or to any of the other classes you may choose to sign up for thank you for helping to support ipac edu and through our affiliation with them you're also supporting rounding the earth because we get a commission um uh, just a quick reminder that if you're in youtube right now you can Uh, leave a super chat uh, uh, which is a a paid fun thing that i can bring up on screen you can also leave a a rumble rant on rumble or a five dollar tip on rockfin it helps support the show but now back to the show so let's move into geopolitics war crimes in ukraine Um, a group commissioned by the united nations said today that they have documented evidence of war crimes in ukraine but It's not entirely clear who they're accusing of committing them. From the Associated Press, quote, based on the evidence gathered by the commission, it has concluded that war crimes have been committed in Ukraine. Eric Mose, the commission's chairman, told the Human Rights Council. So there are some specific accusations directly leveled, well, (laughs) leveled in the direction of Russia, I should say. But I have some questions on their choice of wording. I read again, presenting their most extensive findings so far, they cited testimonies by former detainees of beatings, electric shocks, and forced nudity in Russian detention facilities, and expressed grave concerns about executions the team was working to document in the four regions. So, my question, does Russian detention facilities refer to facilities housing Russian forces captured by Ukraine or Ukrainian forces captured by Russia? Who was executed and by who? These are earnest questions that I sought the answers for and could not find. I return to the quote. Commissioner, uh, sorry, commission member Pablo de Grief told reporters the team had, quote, found two instances of ill treatment of Russian Federation soldiers by Ukrainian soldiers. We have found, obviously, significantly larger numbers of incidences that amount to war crimes on the part of the Russian Federation. So how does degrief define ill treatment and incidences that amount to war crimes? Can this be clarified to more transparently and explicitly compare the nature of the allegations on both sides? Because I think it's open to interpretation which I don't think is useful, actually. I think it lets people make assumptions. Quoting again, Ukrainian ambassador Kornenevich, speaking by video, called for the creation of a special tribunal that would have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression against Ukraine and investigate senior Russian political and military leaders who were allegedly responsible. So my question, what is the evidence leading to the allegations against Russian political and military leaders? He said, accountability was crucial for rights violations and atrocities linked to Russia's aggression, which is in quotes. Absolutely. But if Ukraine is on the record, as they just said, as inflicting ill treatment on Russian soldiers, is it not given, is it not a given that both sides of the conflict should be held accountable? This is an international commission. So why treat this as if Ukraine can do no meaningful wrong? Shouldn't there be transparency on both sides is what I'm saying. Shouldn't the messaging come across that way as well? He said an unspecified number of Russian soldiers were found to have committed crimes of sexual or gender based violence, with victims ranging in age from four to 82 years old. So I'm going to be sensitive here. Is that not too ambiguous, though, to properly assess the extent of the violence? This could be referring to a single act of violence or thousands i'd also suggest that while sexual violence as a term leaves little room for misinterpretation a definition for gender-based violence absolutely must be provided because for example according to the canadian women's federation uh, which i have pulled up here there we go um, this can refer to the type of abuse that women girls and two-spirit trans and non-binary people are at highest risk of experiencing. It can take physical and emotional forms, such as name-calling, hitting, pushing, blocking, stalking-slash-criminal harassment, rape, sexual assault, control, and manipulation. Um, Apparently, men aren't considered to be susceptible to gender-based violence, or at least in their wording, they're not as susceptible. I don't think there's... I don't agree. But... uh, Thanks, Canadian Women's Federation. But regardless, let's say these are the most vulnerable groups. That aside, I think we can all agree that there are a number of instances in a war setting where it may bring about one or more instances of such acts of pushing, control, manipulation, and even, God forbid, name-calling in, <laughs> towards the people who are trying to kill each other. I assume blocking doesn't mean self-defense in this case, such as preventing a punch from hitting your nose, uh, and instead refers to preventing someone from moving physically from one place to another, either across a room or across uh, a geographical region. Um, So, on the other hand, if the accusation here is that Russian soldiers have committed beatings sexual assault, or rape, these need to be explicitly stated with evidence and not be lumped in with name-calling. These are serious accusations and must be treated as such, not carelessly thrown out for the public to speculate on in this unspecific manner. Okay, I continue. The evidence of Russia's atrocities... Becomes more horrifying by the day, most recently with the uncovering of mass graves in Izium, where the bodies show signs of torture, Michelle Taylor, the U.S. Ambassador to the Rights Council, said, referring to a Kharkiv regional city that Ukrainian forces recaptured in recent weeks. So, despite. Despite, despite plenty of innuendo, I have not found myself any evidence to indicate that Russian forces were responsible for torturing and mass burying the bodies in question. Obviously, though, nobody is jumping at the chance to suggest Ukrainian forces did it after reclaiming the region. It would be speculating at this point for me to say that. But on the other hand, the AP actually does leave open the very real possibility that it is, in fact, Ukrainian aligned forces committing these acts. I quote, we were struck by the large number of executions in the areas that we visited. In fact, oh, sorry, the commission is currently investigating such deaths in 16 towns and settlements, commission chairman Mose said he didn't specify who or which side in the war allegedly committed the killings. So I thought that was a good inclusion because they didn't specify. It's unclear who it is. And this is the one exception where they kind of spell out, look, both sides are doing stuff and who you accuse of doing it seems to fall on political lines, which is really ludicrous. These are real human people being hurt by someone. Then comes this statement, By U.S. Ambassador Michelle Taylor from Al Jazeera, I quote, A U.S. envoy says Russia may have forcibly deported between 900,000 and 1.6 million Ukrainians, citing unnamed sources, and urged a U.N.-mandated commission of inquiry to investigate. Numerous sources indicate that Russian authorities have interrogated, detained, and or forcibly deported between 900,000 and 1.6 million Ukrainian citizens, she said sort of repetitive. Sorry about that. Unnamed sources, though, are not useful as they can't be verified by people reading the story or other journalists. It's funny how they're the go-to though on many geopolitical topics and a lot specifically to do with Russia. Um, To be clear, I think this conflict is far more nuanced and complicated than the mainstream news politicians are allowing their audience and constituencies to consider we have to be able to analyze the situation as it is, not how our governments propagandize it to be. Why would we trust the Canadian, American, Ukrainian governments any more than we trust the Russian government? After all, the U.S. government removed restrictions on domestic propaganda in 2013. The Canadian military took advantage of the COVID crisis to, quote, test out propaganda techniques on an unsuspecting public in an information operations campaign. And the Ukrainian government has been caught several times just making beep up. One, two, three. Anyway. Most importantly, I suggest that even the concept that this is a Ukraine versus Russia battle is absurd and that we, me rounding the earth, you, the, the audience, the community, the people engaging, can be part of the solution by saying, I stand with the people of Ukraine. I stand with the people of Russia. I stand with the people all over the world suffering from the actions taken by their own governments in response to this conflict. It's very hard to tell whose military actions most closely align with our individual values, which are each a bit different. So why don't we focus on what we can do? Speak in support of everyday people like you and me, no matter what language they speak, no matter what the color of their skin is, or how they celebrate creation. Now, our last topic for the day. Let's move in to the environment. So we've got some big storms, guys. So... I've titled this Hurricanes on North America's East Coast. Everything these days seems to be discussed as part of some kind of larger situation. Nothing happens in isolation anymore. When it's an idea being proposed, it's part of an agenda. When something bad happens, it's part of an ongoing crisis. These things tend to go hand in hand these days, though. Usually the ongoing crisis then brings about the agenda, but Um, I bring this up to introduce this, a Category 4 hurricane named Fiona is about to hit Canada's east coast. From The Independent via Yahoo News. Quote, the storm is expected to make landfall late Friday night into Saturday morning, bringing intense winds and rains, as well as possible flooding and power outages to much of the region. The heaviest damage will likely be felt in Nova Scotia, where the storm is hitting directly. But since the storm is so large, dangerous weather is also forecast for parts of Newfoundland, Labrador, Quebec, Ontario, New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island. These are all provinces. The Canadian Hurricane Center has warned that this could be a, quote, historic storm and a landmark weather event as the powerful storm makes its way into the region. Fiona has already become the most destructive hurricane of the year so far in the Atlantic Ocean after floods and damaging winds left millions of people without running water or electricity in Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. That's a lot of problems. So to me, it would make the most sense to focus news coverage on the best ways to prepare for the possible damage, mitigate risk to yourself and your community, what items to stock up on, you know, useful information. I have many friends in, and family members in Atlantic Canada and the East Coast of America, and their well-being is my only concern in the short term. In the long term, however... There seems to be a much broader focus on how Fiona shows us that we're all screwed because climate change. What does this mean exactly? Look at the fear-mongering in these headlines. I'm going to pull these I can I can run through them. Um, wetter and stronger. Hurricane Fiona and two typhoons drive home climate concerns. Hurricane Fiona is a harbinger of climate future. How climate change is fueling hurricanes. And last but not least, Hurricane Fiona shows how climate change is fueling severe weather events in Canada, expert. So um, if you put these four headlines together and you paraphrase them, you end up with something like this. Hurricane Fiona is wetter, stronger and more severe than previous storms because of climate change and the future is grim. I wrote that one myself. There are some underlying assumptions that will immediately influence our perception of this reporting. Okay, And I won't try to make a scientific argument beyond just my own critical thinking. But there are a few things I wanted to point out that I found interesting. From the NBC News article, quote, "...with climate change making storms rainier and more intense, the weekend's extreme weather..." Events offer a glimpse of what could become more common in the future, according to experts. One of the most pronounced ways storms have been affected by climate change in recent years can be measured in rainfall increases, said Kevin Reed, an associate professor of atmospheric science at Stony Brook University in New York. As the world's oceans heat up, they provide more energy for storms, allowing them to intensify as they form. A warmer atmosphere can also hold more moisture, Reed said. If you have warmer water, you'll have more evaporation, which means you have more moisture in the atmosphere, which means you can get more precipitation, he said. So, look, storms are one thing, but those tend to accompany rain, don't they? If we're worried about increased rainfall in the coming years, then doesn't that solve another huge unavoidable existential threat? that the World Economic Forum is so concerned about addressing. Now, this is an overly simplistic statement I just made, to be clear, but let's let's just follow the thought through, okay? The headline, droughts are getting worse around the world. Here's why and what needs to be done. From the article, More than 43% of the U.S. was in drought at the end of July, the government's National Integrated Drought Information System revealed. It says over 130 million people at the time of posting are currently affected by drought, as well as 229 million acres of crops, which we covered last week. Um, The U.S. economy has lost an estimated 249 million pounds due to drought and related crop failures, according to the U.N., Drought frequency and duration has increased by nearly a third globally since 2000, the UN says. The climate crisis is fueling this, according to Drought in Numbers 2022. It says more than 2.3 billion people around the world are currently facing water stress. Although droughts only represent 15% of natural disasters, they killed 650,000 people between 1970 and 2019. More than 10 million people have died due to major drought events over the past 100 years. Okay, Uh, I don't disagree, but isn't that really similar in character to what is being said about the storms bringing in too much water? Uh, I'm clearly missing something here. This is on me. I suppose the argument is that everything weather-related is getting more intense. And at really inconvenient times, right when you need the water... You have intense heat, right when you need uh, less water, you get storms, or something like that. The next question is, are weather events actually becoming more intense? And if so, is it because of human activities? One major solution could be increased focus on land restoration, such as agroforestry. Uh, And more efficient irrigation systems, the UN says. The drought in Numbers 2022 report concludes sustainable and efficient agricultural management techniques are needed to grow more food on less land with less water. And humans must change their relationships with food, fodder and fiber, moving toward plant based diets and stemming the consumption of animals. The report authors say A concerted policy, partnerships, and funding at all levels is urgently needed going forward to provide integrated drought action plans. The WEF's solution uh, involves more investment and more public-private partnerships in order to replicate nature and build better irrigation systems. No surprise there. I'm just not convinced these people know what they're talking about. To be blunt. Global News article includes a lot of different qualifiers that make me try to find it again. A lot of qualifiers that make it feel like opportunism more than solid science. So I'm just going to run through a few that I noted down. I think the evidence that I've seen is that the number of hurricanes may not go up. um, But the number of intense hurricanes, categories four and fives, will actually increase in intensity. Explains Gordon McBean, a professor in the Department of Geography and Environment at Western University. Second quote, hurricanes are not unusual in Atlantic Canada, with an average of three to four storms entering Canadian waters each season. About half of those make landfall, according to our Reuters report. So notice the qualifiers and, and the the pieces of information that, that kind of uh, temper the story. Canada is warming about twice as fast as the globe, roughly two and a half degrees Celsius above average, said McBean adding that eastern Canada will probably, there's that word, probably see more severe weather events in the future. Next one, the world has already warmed 1.1 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average, which means before the Industrial Revolution, if I'm not mistaken, which was a while ago. Scientists at the U.S. National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration expect that at 2 degrees Celsius of warming, hurricane wind speeds could increase by up to 10%. Sure, I suppose they could. Uh, I'd have to find a way to refute that. Um, I I have no reason to, other than to say they don't seem certain. Oh, and don't forget (laughs) to avoid going outside when there's a hurricane, actively blowing things around at breakneck speeds. Apparently, this is an issue because, quote, McBean said, despite the projections and the weather warnings, many people seem to ignore them. People may say it's not going to happen to them or whatever, but people need to take the right actions, he said. McBean described the right action as going inside. <laughs> and making sure there's a safe place within the property, like a basement, that would help shield people from the impact of a hurricane. Don't go outside in a hurricane. <laughs> um, I also don't like being told what to do. I get it. I lied. There is one more story um Kyrie Irving this is in culture Kyrie Irving speaks up when others stay silent basketball star Kyrie mm, I haven't eaten lunch yet basketball star Kyrie Irving posted the following tweet if I can work and be unvaccinated then all of my brothers and sisters who are also unvaccinated should be able to do the same without being discriminated against vilified or fired This enforced vaccine slash pandemic is one of the biggest violations of human rights in history. I agree word for word. In an article discussing the message of support for unvaccinated workers, the Mercury News suggested that Irving's tweet was likely in response to the continued requirement that employees of the city of New York be fully vaccinated, whatever that means, with COVID-19 injections. And then, you have this. Opinion. The miseducation of Kyrie Irving. I found this as I was finishing up the show. Getting getting the show ready, okay? And I'm I'm just, I'm going to take you through the series of tweets that I put together. A lot of them are just quoting the article, so, so that will let us skip some bits that just weren't Um, As relevant, but please do go and read the whole thing, because the last thing I want is for anyone to think I'm, you know, omitting or misrepresenting what this person is saying. Uh, That's not my intention. So let's go through this. I posted, I said, enjoy this Huffington Post article from S.A. Crockett Jr., that's Stephen A. Crockett Jr., explaining why he believes Kyrie Irving isn't thinking, speaking or behaving the way a black man in the public eye should. Quote, something happened to the New Jersey native. It's something that can happen to anyone when they go too far down the rabbit hole and can't find their way back out. The NBA champion has apparently become the black Alex Jones or the basketball playing Dr. Umar Johnson. Irving is a conspiracy theorist who has read a few books that aren't even that deep into the conspiracy theory playbook. Then he started spouting off nonsensical and uninformed Hotepian, I don't know what that means, nonsense. Think Harry Potter wizardry, spiked with black conspiracies and less Quidditch. Oh, and he won't get the vaccine for COVID-19. Keep in mind that Irving has never explained why he doesn't want to get the vaccine. He just stood firmly in the paint that he won't be getting it. How dare he not explain his medical decision making to you? The issue is that while Irving has the right to decide whatever he wants with his body, could have fooled me, he ignores the fact that he's a public figure. He has influence, which he has used to sell sneakers and plays video games online with fans. Again, how dare he? And so it makes sense from a media perspective to ask Irving questions about hot button topics, but he's got to understand his position. We are coming from the Charles Berkeley era of athletes in which the flagrant power forward at one point exclaimed he was not a role model. However, now we are in a socially conscious uh, awakening era in which sports stars are no longer remaining silent on issues that affect their communities. Um, LeBron James, arguably the face of the league, has made it a point to be vocal about everything from the police killings of unarmed black and brown people to the NBA's tone-deaf decision to suspend Suns and Mercury owner Robert Sarver for a measly year after reports that he's repeatedly used the N-word and has a history of sexual inappropriateness among his staff. Dwayne Wade has been an ardent supporter of LGBTQ issues and his daughter's first defender. Those are athletes. Those are athletes who understand the power of their platforms. Then there is Irving. Standing off to the side of the cookout, crying out that Tupac is not dead, and for years was managing a Cluck U in College Park, Maryland. Black people are, most li- are more likely to die from COVID-19, and for Irving to use his megaphone to go against the one known helpful deterrent in the spread of this disease is not only irresponsible, but it's also dangerous. Irving's intelligence could be put to better use if he spent more time doing the actual work and not working to unearth some hidden secret. His voice is powerful. I ignored him when he claimed the world was flat, a statement for which he later backtracked and apologized. I ignored him when he saged the court before a game, because who amongst has not broken out a bundle of sage to smoke out bad energy? But his initial thoughts on the COVID-19 vaccine were dangerously close to the anti vaxing talking points from the Trump campaign. <laughs> um, lest we not forget, the famed point guard missed home games because he refused to get vaccinated during the height of the COVID-19 spread. His stance didn't change until the mandate was lifted in New York. Well, I don't think it changed after that point. I think it's still the same. But Irving then took to Twitch and shared a monologue on the mysterious they who want people to care about different societal issues. He doesn't quite say who they are or the stuff that we should care about. And that's the rub. I believe that Irving believes his heart is in the right place, much like the Goonies before him. Irving appears destined to un- unearth Zelda's secrets while also playing professional basketball. Whereas I truly believe that Kanye West just spouts off whatever he's thinking, Irving believes the nonsense he's exclaiming. Wait, what the hell am I talking about? The dangers of Irving's beliefs. New York City Mayor Eric Adams recently changed the private employer vaccine mandate, but still requires city workers to be vaccinated to work. This, of course, upset Irving who has been an anti-vaxxer since the beginning of the pandemic. He took to Twitter to voice his concerns on Tuesday. And as he said, if I can work and be unvaccinated, then all my other brothers and sisters who are also unvaccinated should be able to do the same without being discriminated against, vilified or fired, he wrote. This in- this enforced vaccine slash pandemic is one of the biggest uh, violations of human rights in history. Um. I don't think requiring workers to be vaccinated to prevent the spread of infectious disease is up there with slavery or the Holocaust. Are you sure you want to stick to that? You sh- you want to sign your name on that and sign seal delivered? That's well, the wayback machine exists for a reason, I suppose. But I also can't split a double team or throw an effective and on-time alley-oop, so what do I know? Kyrie Irving is not a god, but he is a black man with an extraordinary gift and responsibility greater than himself. And if he chooses to accept this path, then just like every superhero before him, he can begin to do real tangible work. My final tweet, this entire article is tremendously racist. I am appalled and disgusted. But let me know what you think. Genuinely, this will come down to to, uh, opinion. I just think... I'll I'll leave it on that. Thank you so much for watching. (laughs) Slash reading, rounding the news. You can find me at www.leamsturgis.com or at the Liam Sturgis on Twitter. Make sure to subscribe to Rounding the Earth on YouTube, Rumble, Rockfin, BitChute, and Brighteon, and most importantly, become a paid subscriber to the Rounding the Earth Substack. There is all sorts of wonderful content on here um, that uh, you do not want to miss out on. Most importantly, of course, and I think I just said most importantly, but truly most importantly, watching the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for um, accommodating my different times of day when I run this. I'm trying to make the highest quality product I can. um, And unfortunately that has yet to, uh, I've yet to figure out how to do that and also stick to an established, you know, single hour to choose to go live. So thank you for bearing with me. Thank you for your support. And um, I look forward to seeing you all again on the flippity flop, as they say. And I apologize to the gentleman who doesn't like it when I wear hats. Uh, Where's my button? Where's my button? Okay, I'll see you guys later.